Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you on Thursday the 12th of January. I'm John Connolly, The Spectator's news editor and your host this week. Coming up on the show. Who's afraid of Keir Starmer? Fraser Nelson writes in this week's cover piece that the Tories will find it hard to demonise the Labour leader in the same way as his predecessors. Fraser will be on the show with Matthew Goodwin. Does Rishi Sunak have a plan to stop the small boats crisis? Katie Balls asks whether fixing the problem could be key to helping the Conservatives win back voters. Katie and Stephen Bush will join me. Prince Harry's new memoir, Spare, was released this week. Harry describes doing drugs, losing his virginity and falling out with his brother. What on earth was he thinking? I'll speak to Petronella Wyatt and David Abelafia. In this week's magazine, Owen Matthews explains why Putin's plan to freeze Europe this winter failed. Russia risks a repeat of the 1990s, he says, with it becoming a failed state. He'll join the show. And finally, Tarantino can make films, but can he write? John Mayer reviews the director's new book, Cinema Speculation, in this week's magazine, and will be on the show to tell us what he thought. Before we get going, thank you to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for sponsoring this episode of The Week in 60 Minutes. Canaccord are experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. And if you enjoy Spectator TV, then do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. First up, would Keir Starmer be such a bad Prime Minister? Fraser Nelson, the Spectator's editor, wonders if there's really any difference between him and Rishi Sunak. The Tories, after all, seem to have completely run out of ideas. To explain, Fraser joins me now alongside Matthew Goodwin, the academic and pollster. Fraser, Matthew, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, Fraser, you write in the magazine this week that the Tories have lost one of the most potent weapons when it comes to Labour. Can you uh, tell us a bit about that, please? Well, for quite a few years now, the Conservatives' major weapon in election campaigns was asking voters to be very afraid of the other guy. Mm. Now, when the other guy was Jeremy Corbyn, that didn't need much elaboration. You had people like Ian Austin um, quitting as Labour MP to vote against um, Jeremy Corbyn. But previously, you had, let's be worried about Red Ed and the Coalition of Chaos, etc. So traditionally, when you look at what the Conservatives stand for as a party, they're pretty ideologically flexible. What they stand for is keeping the other guys out of power. Mm. That has been the traditional conservative rule. Now, this works if the other guy is scary or can be made to seem to be scary. And I look right now in this cover story at that how Keir Starmer is many, many things. You might say he's dull and hasn't said a memorable thing in three years. But it's difficult to say that he is a real and present threat to the United Kingdom in the way that they were able to say about Jeremy Corbyn. Now, that is a problem for the Tories because for so long they've become, I think, a bit lazy in not really making the positive arguments for conservatism and not really believing or defining what what they stand for or why somebody should choose them rather than somebody else. They've just said the other guy's awful, but now they're going to have to fall back on why they're very good at what, what they have to offer, why somebody should actively want a fifth conservative term. And there, I think they're running into some problems, not simply because that like, Keir Starmer is hard to caricature, mm. it's who his shadow cabinet is. Wes Streeting is proving a plausible NHS reformer. He's taking flack from the health unions. And then you've got John Ashworth, who's shadow work and pension secretary. He was giving a speech to Ian Duncan-Smith's Centre for Social Justice a few days ago. 
And the language he was using struck me as exactly the language that IDS used against Gordon Brown. Mm. Look at these five million people on welfare. Isn't it a scandal? It's a waste of human life, not just a waste of money. These used to be Tory attack lines used at the government. So you can see things moving full circle. Uh, we haven't looked at Labour for a while, and, can, uh, and I think it was time to look in this cover piece, that this is a party which isn't just going through the motions of change, they are doing policy changes as well. And if you're a wavering voter, there isn't very much right now to be obviously afraid of. Mm. And Matthew, do you agree with that assessment? Do you think voters kind of don't have anything to fear from Labour anymore? I do uh, agree uh, broadly with Fraser's piece, and I, I've been thinking much the same recently when it comes to the ideas on on things like the NHS, on um, the economy, um, Labour, also on Brexit, by the way, uh, accepting essentially where we are with Brexit. Labour in a much stronger position than they were. And this is reflected in just how weak the Conservative brand has become. I mean, the remarkable fact about British politics today is that the Conservative Party does not own a single major issue in British politics. There is one exception, which is defence. Uh, but to be frank, voters don't really uh, think about defence when they're voting uh, at the ballot box. They think about the economy, they think about the NHS, they think about immigration, inflation, the cost of living. On none of those issues do the Conservative Party hold a lead. So you go back to you know, the Blair years, the Thatcher years, um, the message from all of that data is quite clear. The parties that own the, the big salient issues are the parties that win elections. So... So that I, I completely agree with. I, I suppose where I might push back a little bit, perhaps, is I still believe that while Starmer has done everything he needs to do to get Labour into power, I still think he's vulnerable. I still think that if you look at Starmer's ratings, there are a few things that if I was in Starmer's office would probably be keeping me up at night. Only about one third of the country today say they trust Keir Starmer. Uh, his competency ratings, meaning the share of people who say, I think this guy is competent, they've basically been flatlining at, at quite low levels. And, and more voters tend to dislike Starmer um, than like him. And more people tend to say he doesn't look like a prime minister in waiting than say he does. Now, yes, he's doing the things he needs to do, but I think he's still seen by a large majority of the country, actually, um, with suspicion. Uh, a sense they're not entirely sure whether this guy has moved on from the the years, the very fraught years of the, the Brexit uh, referendum and its aftermath. And that, if the Conservatives are clever, um, and, and Fraser I completely agree with, I mean, they've made a number of mistakes and they might not be up to this task, but if they are clever, they may well actually be able to exploit some of that in the context of a general election campaign. Mm. Fraser, do you think that's something the Tories can do? Or do you think they're too lost at sea at the moment to kind of put together a strategy for an next election like that? I think it is very much something they can do, as long as they stop thinking about themselves. I mean, right now, they have been fighting each other for a long, long time. Uh, Keir Starmer has not had to attack Conservatives at all because they've been doing it to themselves. Uh, if you look at the opinion poll lead now, Starmer's on, broadly speaking, 20 points. Um, you have to go back. I think it was only once in post-war history has an opposition gone to lose the next election after being so far ahead. But that was Neil Kinnock against John Major. So Tories have done this before. They can do it again. Now, Keir Starmer is, to put it mildly, not the most formidable leader that Labour has ever had. Um, he's, he's hard to hate. And I think people underestimate that. I mean, take Joe Biden, for example, not the most charismatic president. 
but America just thought it needed that after the exhaustion of the Trump drama. Mm -hmm. Now perhaps they think of the exhaustion of the Tory leadership psychodrama, they might need somebody a little bit boring. Sometimes electorates can see being boring as a virtue. But because Starmer himself is playing it safe, and all he's really doing is sort of tut-tutting at the Tory errors in front of him. He isn't really coming out with a, an inspiring agenda to vote for Labour. Um, now that gives the Conservatives an opportunity. If they can actually think of an inspiring pro-Tory message, yeah. then they might not get much pushback. It may well be that Keir Starmer is simply geared up to be the receptacle of Tory protest votes, but isn't really... Um, psychologically suited to go out there and win converts in the way that Tony Blair was able to win quite enthusiastic converts to the Blair project. So this is very reversible for the Conservatives, but I think they would have to, to, to recover. They'd have to get out of the head the idea that Labour is unelectable. Mm. Labour is, is very electable right now. I think West Streeting and John Ashworth, for example, are serious guys and sincere in their desire to reform public services. In Rachel Reeves, you've got somebody who says she doesn't want to increase income tax. And in Jeremy Hunt, you've got a chancellor who wants to put tax and spending to the highest level in post-war history, Labour or Tory. So, so right now, you know, there, are, there is scope for a slightly better offer than what we're getting here right now. If the Conservatives can make that better offer, then great, but they haven't got much time. Mm. And Matthew, um, in Fraser's piece, he mentioned something that the Tories have squandered is the fact that they've raised the tax burden to sort of record highs. Um, do you get the sense that's a lost opportunity as well for the Tories? Yeah, I mean, I think the the key point we need to remember is that the economic context, if I'm right at least, is going to change radically over the next 12 months. Um, inflation, we can already see, has, has probably peaked, will we'll start to fall through 23. Interest rates will, will start to come down significantly, I think. Um, the energy bills will not be as high as people feared last winter. We can already see some of that. The cost of living crisis will, by the end of the year, I suspect, be a lot, um, a lot less pressing than, than it feels currently. All of that, politically, will allow Rishi Sunak to get into the narrative of uh, things are getting better. We're over the worst of it. Uh, Let's not take a risk now on, on a new government. Let's not take a gamble. I think he will also be hoping alongside that, that the legislation and the, the changes around migration and the small boats, which remember is a top two issue for Conservatives, it's the second issue for, for the 2019 Conservatives, that that is bearing fruit by the spring and the summer. So again, he can say, look, things are starting to change. Do you really trust Labour on this issue? Uh, and the short answer I can tell you from my polling is no. Uh, Labour are still deeply vulnerable on the migration question, um, less so on the economy, but, but they are vulnerable on, the, on that question. And the third point here that I think may end up helping Sunak more than we currently anticipate is that even still, if you look at 2019 Conservative voters, only about 15 to 20 percent of those voters are defecting to Labour. Uh, the vast majority who have left the Conservative Party, such a number now saying they don't know who they're going to vote for. They're sitting it out. Uh, Midterm blues are sitting it out. They're probably alienated by the tax increases. They're alienated by Rishi Sunak. They don't like the way Boris Johnson was seemingly thrown out of power. Um, but they aren't switching en masse to Labour yet. The numbers who are is, is beginning to tick up. But, but overall, most of them are, are sitting out. That, to me, alongside this changing economic context, 
gives Team Sunak an opportunity, whether they can reinvent their message and their their brand uh, as we go into that next election remains to be seen. But there is an opportunity emerging on the horizon that I think we do well to take seriously. Mm. And Fraser, one of those sort of attacks, we could say, Rishi Sunak's first sort of mini relaunch came earlier this year with sort of five targets that he set himself, uh, one of which was the small boats that Matthew mentioned there. Do you think that's the kind of right strategy, the right the right approach? No, that was dismal. When it's, that was, I'm trying to work out if such a word as a de-launch. That sort of like <laughs> worse than where he was before. And he came up with the, these five pledges saying no tricks. As far as I could work out, so almost every single one of them was a trick. And it seemed to be an astonishing lack of ambition saying he wants to grow the economy. Well, everybody in the two-year period has, for the last 500 years has grown the economy. He says he wants to um, uh, decrease debt, but he's got no plans to do that, so that was incorrect. You might even call it a lie. Um, and he says he wants to half inflation. Well, inflation is going to happen in Britain, in America, in Israel, in Canada, in France, in Germany. Any one of those leaders could have stood up and said, you know, I intend to have inflation this year. But they didn't because it would have been disingenuous. Mm. So to see Rishi Sunak reaching for these Gordon Brown style tools of desperation mm. was what made me write this cover story in the first place. I looked at it and thought, God, this is incredibly complacent of the Tories if you think this staggeringly unambitious platform can in any way be described as a pledge. Mm. The only ambitious thing they mentioned was stopping the small boats, stopping the small boats, not reducing the landings by half. Now, there's no way he's going to be able to, if he is, I will take my hat off to him. So it seemed to me to be four fantasies and an undeliverable. Mm. And if that is his New Year's resolution for 2023, it's going to be a very difficult um, year for the Tories indeed. Thank you, Fraser, and thank you, Matthew. Katie Balls, The Spectator's political editor, writes in this week's magazine that tackling the small boats crisis might be the best way for the government to win the public back over. To discuss Sunak's plan, Katie joins me now alongside Stephen Bush, Associate Editor at the Financial Times. Katie and Stephen, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, Katie, you write in this week's magazine about the fact that despite some sort of public support for Rishi Sunak and his new five pledges, there's a lot of murmurings of discontent on the Tory backbenchers. Can you uh, tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, I mean, this is nothing particularly new in terms of the Tory party and their leaders, particularly in recent years. Um, but I think, yes, Rishi Sunak brought a sense of stability back, or a relative sense, um, after a really turbulent year. But already you're starting to hear, you know, backbenchers complain and some ministers. So I think the five priorities, there's definitely one school of thought that this is good. Um, it's what voters are actually talking about when it comes to those main issues, so cost of living, the state of the NHS. So I think any talk for that isn't particularly good for the Tories, but the state of the NHS. And then, of course, small boats. But also you are hearing plenty of other Tories say, where is the big vision? Um, are you just repeating what you hear in a focus group? Um, and I think one minister said to me, this is a pointless speech, which suggests that we are pointless. Mm. Um, and therefore, what does Rishi Sunak do at a time when I think uh, I think it's safe to say lots of Tories feel pretty uninspired and are almost writing off the next election to try and bring his party back together? Mm. Stephen, do you think they're right to be uninspired by Rishi Sunak? Do you think they're right about these criticisms of his sort of lack of vision there? Uh, well, yes and no, right? So, so yes, right, these are five pledges that are, well, one of them is not the government, you know, one of them is the target of a central bank. One of them is like saying, I pledged that under the Conservatives in two years' time we'll all be two years older. Well, yeah, of course, that's how time works. Um, and the other three are ones which, again, it's very easy to see how they will be met. And so you can see how um, 
that fits into an election campaign going, you know, the worst has, the worst has happened, things are turning the corner, don't let Labour ruin it. Um, now, I would say a reasonable argument for why Conservative MPs should feel nervous about that is, is, is that it is identical to the um, campaign that John Major fought in 1997 at a time with a much better economy. Right, yeah. yeah. Broadly speaking... In 97, that's very yeah, I don't think anyone believes that any set of policy choices would, would get, get you to the economy uh, John Major was overseeing in 1997 by the back end of 2024. But the reason why I also say no is that I do sometimes feel a little bit, um, when I hear Conservative MPs talk about Rishi Sunak, it's like hearing someone who drove their car into the wall, then peed all over the burning car, <laughs> uh, a mechanic has finally arrived and they're just, I still don't have a functioning vehicle. It's like, well, it was a lot worse before he started, you know, this thing is, broadly speaking, we've now got to a point where Conservative MPs are often quite churlishly going, oh, we might lose the next election. It's like, I mean, guys, a couple of months ago, it was a question whether or not you'd survive the next election. Mm. So, yes, they do have these problems. Yes, it is hard to see from here how they could turn it, turn it around. But fairly obviously, uh, they now have, um, in Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, their best available candidates mm. for those two top jobs. Uh, so, yeah. Mm. And Katie, you say in your column, you know, one of the issues that is, one of the pledges that is a bit more difficult for them to do is, or remarkably more difficult for them to do, is the small boats issue. Can you tell us a bit about sort of the divide in the Tory party about whether this is a good idea, whether they should be? Yeah, so, so I think within the Tory party, there is actually, on all the issues where there is unity, there is unity that this is a good idea to stop the boats. The question mm. is, how do you do it? Yeah. And how do you phrase it? And therefore, again, it's slightly to that point, which I think Stephen's completely correct about, of um, the fact that lots of Tory MPs are very quick to criticise Rishi Sunak and, you know, things that have come before, uh, which have had an effect today. But on the one hand, they're unambitious targets. So people say, well, inflation is going to come down anyway. That's global. That's not really to do with Rishi Sunak. Um, figures in number 10 would disagree. Um, but on the other hand, they'll say, well, stop the boats. That's way too ambitious. Mm. We're, you know, making ourselves a hostage for fortune. Um, and I think when it comes to boats, what Rishi Sunak effectively needs to do is keep his party really behind him, not in a way that, I don't think Rishi Sunak's position right now is at risk, despite lots of talk of yeah. the return of Boris Johnson, which I think we're probably just going to have to live with being <laughs> a theme for basically this year and maybe every year to come, um, no matter what happens to the Tory party. Um, but I think he needs to offer some hope or purpose to his backbenchers so they feel they have a common cause. Mm. And I think the priorities to give them something they can talk about. But I think small boats within Downing Street is seen as something where actually you could unite the party around it um, to, to this idea of a shared mission. Um, and one of the things will be um, in the next four weeks, we're expecting it, this new legislation that Rishi has talked about, um, which is to strengthen the laws, bring in new laws, um, which will make it easier in their minds to actually um, stop those arriving in small boats will be deporting, um, whether it's to Rwanda, whether it's back to a safe country. And once you have that legislation in the House, can you make a fight? Because you want to unite the Tory party, but you also want to divide Labour. And I think uh, lots of them are saying, what makes them so uncomfortable is just how confident Labour are at the moment. You look in the Commons chamber, you look at Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's questions, the fact that Keir Starmer is very happy to go in immigration and just point at the Tories' record. Mm -hmm. So they want to somehow turn the tables on that. And I think 
if you know Labour do oppose this legislation, which I think is the working assumption in government, can you start to weaponise that? Um, if the Lords hold it up, can you start to say, well, look, look, we have a plan, but these various groups are disrupting it, and use that as um, a dividing line? Because yeah. what is the dividing line for the Tories and Labour at the next election? I mean, Fraser Nelson for the cover this week talks about why um, actually. Is there much reason to be afraid of Keir Starmer? Mm. He finds that um, the arguments you would have had about Jeremy Corbyn don't work. I mean, I was speaking to one senior Tory. He said the problem is the three reasons they won in the 2019 election are gone. Mm. Um, and that was you know, getting Brexit done, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn all coming together. Um, so they need something new to say. And I think there there is a sense that of all the things, if you look at the state of the economy, but also the fact there aren't so many dividing lines right now between Labour and the Tories, mm. um, immigration could be where you could find one. Mm, on that point, Stephen, um, if Labour do find themselves on the opposite side of the dividing line, particularly about deportations to Rwanda, do you think they'd be comfortable there? Um, or do you think there's sort of a vulnerability for Labour there? No, I mean, to be honest, although, like, you know, I mean, obviously Katie remains the, the impeccable source about what goes on within the Conservative Party's governing mind, and you do hear that, exactly that argument made. Look, the reason why small boats are politically painful for the government is they are, they're failing, right? Uh, broadly speaking, it's expensive to, to, get to, you know, to get to a point where, well, one, you're never going to get to a point where there's zero illegal movement into your, into your country. The only way to be a country where there isn't illegal movement, where there aren't people seeking to come uh, and claim asylum is to be a country people want to claim asylum from, right? And, Again, fortunately, it's out with the, ability, the capabilities of government to get, to get to that point in two years. Where you could get is a place where you can at least say we are successfully regularising the status of more people in the immigration system on any given day than there are people mm. coming in via small boats. But if you were to do that, you would have to be um, stepping up our enforcement of illicit practices in the labour market, stepping up our enforcement of you know, various petty crimes, because of course most of the criminal gangs that do these activities, you know, they have diversified portfolios as it were, they aren't just doing people trafficking, they're also doing drug trafficking and other offences that we, we don't chase down. And I think Labour will feel very, well, Labour feel very confident that they are on the right side of the bet going, look, we're going to oppose this saying it's not going to work. Mm. You're going to run around bringing people's attention to the fact that you're in a mess and it's not going to work. And we will still be able to say at the back end of 2024, this didn't work. Now, of course, uh, viewers with long memories will go, isn't that the gamble that they played on the economy in 2012, which didn't work out for them in 2015? That, that would be the situation in which it backfired for them. But obviously, up until the point that happens, they'll, they'll feel confident that it won't. And I think you can see that in the sense, when it comes to the Rwanda scheme specifically, Labour have attacked it, but they've attacked it on functionality, workability. Mm. And they've actually tried to say to those who will listen, don't attack it on moral grounds. Um, stick to this competence argument, because they know as soon as you get into that, that's actually where I think the Labour Party will be divided and potentially to the voters they want to win at the next election and mm. um, be going off message there. So, so while they can and say it doesn't work, um, I think that this is a comfortable position for Labour. The question is, can Rishi Sunak show enough progress um, in terms of, you know, perhaps a bit optimistically? I mean, number 10 really are betting the house on delivery. So they'll say, you know, it's all still to play for, um, but delivery is anyway going to win the next election. But they want to find some metrics to point to to say, well, look, actually, on, on Albanians, we have done this. Here we have done that. So stick with us. 
if there isn't enough progress, there'll also be an internal argument within the Tory party, mm. because there is a school of thought which dates back, I think, to some who are involved with the Vote Leave campaign. And this is also an idea, I think, considered by some during the shortly lived Trust Premiership, which is why is the Rwanda scheme not working? One of the reasons at the moment, and yes, you recently had a court judgment saying it is lawful, mm. um, but if you can't uh, get it to work with various changes that we're seeing now, I think pressure will grow, and you've already heard from Tory, some Tory backbenchers for the UK to pull out of the ECHR. Mm. Now, the argument goes, which you've heard from actually MPs in different places and some, and some government advisors, so this is not government policy, and I don't think they would want to do this right now, is that you could put it in the manifesto, the general election becomes a de facto um, referendum on the ECHR, and therefore you have a, you know, get the boats done type pitch which is we're we've got half the policy you've seen how all these vessels are trying to stop it and vote for us and we will actually do everything we can to make sure it really happens so mm. there are some problems with that but people will say well it is a dividing line mm. and you can see the way that brexit was put on the agenda um in this way do you think that could work stephen well i mean i, I doubt it not least because look, i think the central biggest mistake than um the sort of continuity remain campaign made in the 2017-2019 parliament is they visibly were the problem whereas it feels to me that the risk with this dividing line of oh you put it in the manifesto and you go get the boat start is that at that point the line to take from the government will be um, we haven't been able to get a grip of this problem um, for the whole of the parliament we're proposing that we would make ourselves a pariah in Europe um, that we would, you know, join join Russia and Belarus in not being in the e e ECHR. We've spent millions upon millions of pounds, and you know, and I mean, if we are, yeah, if the government is very lucky, they may have sent what, as many as five people to Rwanda, some of whom will come back, right? As as we saw when Israel tried to to have a have a, the same policy. Um, I think essentially, the, as Katie says, the, the big the big bet here is delivery. I am not convinced that an election dividing line based on the idea that with a large majority the government has failed to deliver on this issue that it won't shut up about is a, is a good move. Mm. However, I think the interesting question is, I don't think any of us can say for sure what does count as delivery on this. It's possible, right, that, that even one successful flight to Rwanda would change how people perceive the government's handling of immigration. Mm. I don't know if that's the case. But if, if overnight that one flight means that we see from voters going, like it in theory, but you can't do it and you're rubbish, to like it in theory, love it in practice, then suddenly this dividing line becomes very powerful. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Katie. Prince Harry's book, Spare, gives excruciating details about his and his family's lives. King Charles wasn't always a great father to him. William and Kate pushed him to wear that Nazi uniform. And Camilla always wanted to be a queen, according to Harry. In this week's magazine, Cambridge professor David Abelafia looks at the historical role of the royal spare, and journalist Petronella Wyatt writes in defence of Camilla. The pair join me now. Petronella and David, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, Petronella, to start us off, uh, you write in, this, in the magazine about a, a defence of Camilla from Harry's attacks, but before we get into that, can you tell us a bit about your sort of reaction to Harry's book that's come out this week and the sort of the revelations that have, uh, that have come from it? Um, yes, I think it's quite extraordinary coming from a member of the royal family on two levels. One being um, some of the revelations are so kind of tawdry. You sort of sort of wonder whether or not um, he thinks he's a kind of footballer writing his memoir or um, a, 
a TV reality star. I mean, I think it's very odd to have that kind of level of revelations about um, sexual activity and taking drugs coming from a member of the royal family. But my view seems to be that this is all therapy, which should never have become public, but has become public. Mm. And the other thought that struck me is that the ghostwriter is too good. He's too fluent. (laughs) It's quite clearly not (laughs) Harry's voice because there are passages that are actually very well written and lyrical with quotes from um, great authors. It doesn't quite reflect what we know about Harry. Uh, No. no, no. (laughs) Do you get the sense maybe that um, Harry's very very absorbed with what sort of hurt has caused him but doesn't realise the hurt he's causing others perhaps? Well, the extraordinary thing is the total lack of, of empathy Hmm. Uh, which suggests to me that um, he is very unhappy, insists he's extremely happy, but happy people do not try and make their family miserable Hmm. and they don't engage in spiteful public attacks. Hmm. So I really don't um, buy into his truth um, of being happy because a happy person doesn't behave like that. Hmm. And a happy person is rather content with the status quo, etc. I mean, I I think that he is um, very troubled and has a slight persecution mania. Hmm. Um, But uh, yes, but like a lot of people with persecution mania, because Bertrand Russell wrote about this, it's um, it's a condition in which they fail to see the other person's point of view. So he fails to see the hurt he's causing to his brother, to his father, to Camilla. And also he's completely incapable of apologizing for anything and keeps demanding apologies from them. So that's, um, yeah, it's it's mind-boggling, really. <laughs> and, David, you write in the magazine this week about the historical status of spares, as, as Harry puts himself. I mean, do you think Harry's had it worse than most when you look back in history? <laughs> well, I don't really. I mean, if you go back to, let's say, the 12th century, when you had all these sons of Henry II who were fighting one another uh, sometimes fighting their father, joining, you know, one moment they'd be friends, next moment they'd be enemies. It was very tumultuous. And what struck me very forcibly was, you know, if you go back to the past, of course, you find people actually taking up arms, killing people in order to try and grab the throne and so on. You can't do that nowadays. But with the modern media, we're looking at uh, a very different way in which a sort of princely rebellion takes place. Um, it takes place in public, of course, uh, and it takes place through the media, through Twitter, through Netflix, all that sort of thing. So it's very interesting to compare how in the 21st century uh, a prince might sort of stand up and voice his objections to um, to his brother, to his father and so on. A very, very different world. Mm. And David, what did you make of the relationship between... Harry and William. Is that, is that something you often see in history? It's the brothers in particular who are, who are clashing. Very much so. I mean, you, ha- you have examples where there's a great deal of harmony. If I'm not mistaken, Charles II and James II, they used to walk around Green Park together in public and so on, and they seem to see one another despite you know some differences about their religious policies and so on. They, they actually seem to have 
have been in some sort of harmony. But it's a constant theme. And of course, it's a constant theme because there's so much to play for. There's in the past, it's a question of power. Uh, it's a question of wealth, all these things which uh, younger brothers might well, I'm not just talking about princes, younger brothers might very well sort of envy um, the elder brother because he has automatic access to all of this. So it's quite interesting sometimes to compare that. One thing I do in my article is sort of comparing that with the situation where uh, a ruler, for instance, divides up his lands among his sons and sometimes his daughters as well. Uh, but that often doesn't solve the problem because uh, that just sort of sets off competition to grab one's neighbor's lands and so on. So you, you're back to square one and the next generation, the same sort of thing happens. Mm, I mean, Patrick, the way David says it, it almost seems almost inevitable that you're going to end up with these fallouts with when one sort of child is spurred. Does that make you feel any sympathy for Harry at all? Or do you um, think that's pushing it? <laughs> I, I quite agree with David's analysis. I, I think um, what used to be armies, um, there's now social media and, and streaming giants like Netflix, and it is a way of rebelling, waging war, or even potentially destroying somebody else's reputation and as we know it can destroy people's careers as well but um i'm not that sorry for harry because i think that um spares in the old days had a much tougher time and also there are there are many other cases today for example um there are people who are the younger sons of dukes or earls who see their older brother inherit the stately home and the title and uh, I've known two younger brothers and it can't be a picnic but they've always behaved with grace and they haven't made a career out of trashing their brother because of it or their family and I also think that in Harry's case uh, in some ways it was better to be the spare mm. because I wouldn't want to be William, the future king, for anything in this world. I think Harry had the advantages of having the titles, the privileges, w without the responsibility mm. and that terrible burden. Yeah. And you write particularly about Camilla. Yes. Do you think do. Harry's been particularly unfair to Camilla in yes, sort of his criticisms of her and. She's accused of being quite scheming, for example. Well, that's ludicrous. Um, that's absolutely ludicrous because I've, I've known her for a very long time since I was in my late teens. And she's absolutely incapable of, of scheming. And uh, she's a very nice woman. She was very anxious about the first time she met the boys. Um, she wasn't even that keen on marrying Charles. It was Charles who wanted that. She was keen on a more informal arrangement she's not interested in the limelight she's not interested in titles unlike Harry who for some weird reason you know attacks the outdated nature of the royal family and yet hangs on the dear life to his titles <laughs> uh, and I also think it's very hypocritical of him because he's this kind of um, he's now a new age feminist and yet he's attacking a 75 year old woman who can't answer back Quite unpleasant language often. It's very unpleasant. I mean, it's the language of um, a sort of Game of Thrones come Disney fairy tales, evil stepmothers. It's almost infantile, strangely mm. enough. Mm. 
I mean, David, it does seem, you know, you talk a lot about sort of succession and brothers, but it also ties into sort of the stepmother trope there a bit, doesn't it, as well, with Harry and Camilla? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are famous examples of powerful stepmothers if you go back in history. I mean, I've mentioned Henry II, and there's the famous Eleanor of Aquitaine, whom he married. You know, things like this, people who sometimes managed, women who managed to exercise enormous power um, and who could sort of play around with sons, stepsons, and so on, and dangle all sorts of offers in front of them. So that's been, that's been a constant, really. Yes, but Harry, um, in Harry's case, I mean, Ca- Ca- Camilla has nothing to dangle in front of him. Mm. No, no. She doesn't have anything he wants. She has no lands at her disposal. Um, she can't put him on the throne instead of his brother. <laughs> But it's a very interesting point you made about Eleanor, because eventually, though, Henry got fed up and locked her up. So, uh, <laughs> are we looking at that? <laughs> no, I wonder if I'll do that to Harry at some point. You mentioned your piece as well, Petronella, that this is the first time we've seen Harry speak away from Meghan for quite a long time. Do you think maybe people have been a bit unfair to Meghan, perhaps, and a lot of this is Harry's own doing and yes. sort of problem. I've revised my opinion of Meghan. I've also heard from a very good source that it was Harry who did more of the screaming and yelling at staff when they were working roles, and it was Meghan who had to calm him down. Now, this is completely new. This is a scoop. I haven't told anyone yeah, about this. Um, so I think that she is much calmer, more conciliatory, and I think it's that apparent that Harry has lived with this sort of bitterness and, and, mm. and anger um, ever since his mother's death. Mm. And he hasn't been able to get rid of it because, um, the, I mean, everything he's done with Meghan, well, the Netflix thing was, it was pretty harmless and it was all sort of, um, it was like home and garden. Very much like California. Yeah. yeah, very Californian. <laughs> but this is, this is bile stuff, you know, this is, hatred fueled stuff and I, I don't think it's coming from Megan at all. Mm. But could I then ask you, I mean, where Petronella do you think he gets some of his vocabulary from? Because he's been talking in these interviews about unconscious bias and it does seem to me that some of the language, how could I put this politely, is, is a little beyond his normal sort of... Yes, I think I think a lot of his new language definitely comes from Megan. Um, the rest comes from the ghostwriter. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he would never have heard of unconscious mm. bias. I mean, he was basically um, a kind of upper-class oik um, and a pretty sexist one. Uh, and I think Megan has... Uh, yeah, she's... Got him to buy into the whole California um, stuff and and the therapy stuff and whatever, but I don't think you can blame her for this sort of bitterness. It seems to go right back to his childhood, mm-hmm. and and although Megan in a way has facilitated this um, because she's very much a person who wants to tell her truth or believes in letting everything come out rather than um, the British way of keeping everything inside and just soldiering on. She's facilitated it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Mm. And you're right. But uh, I don't think she's created this, um, well, little monster that now emerges. Mm. 
What do you think the uh, the major audience is here? I mean, how do we balance the American audience against the British audience? And of course, there's a worldwide audience as well. But just thinking of those two audiences, one of whom perhaps Meghan might be addressing more, is that possible? And Harry more? Yes. Trying to get to the British audience? Mm. Yes, I think when it's Meghan, she's very conscious of addressing an American audience. And I think Harry is trying to settle scores and therefore is very much aimed at his family and a British audience. Mm. But the trouble is that um, he's gone too far and we don't really like our royal family being trashed in this way by a very privileged young man during a cost yeah. of living crisis. Yeah. Uh, and I think he has gone too far, and, and even with the Americans, because I think the American media are now making total fools out of him. Mm. Yeah, I was going to come back to that. I mean, to David, your excellent point about these being sort of the modern weapons of war, these sort of social media and press attacks. I mean, do you think they're backfiring as well now on the couple? I, I think they are. I mean, I think that... Um, so much, I mean, with the leaking of what was in the book, which I must admit I haven't read. Um, but oh, you've got a treat in front of you. So much of that just sort of pouring out and dominating the media for days and days and days. And, and of course, the point that kept coming across was well, the royal family won't reply, and in a certain sense, can't reply. It wouldn't be right to reply. Uh, and that dignified silence, I think, actually is winning the royal family a lot of sympathy. Yes, it definitely also, is. So, sorry, the simple fact, we have a new king, and he's made, in my view, an excellent start to his his reign. And everyone is, of course, very sympathetic to him and, and seeing how he's adapted from being Prince of Wales to, to being king. Um, and he's, not, in a sense, not being given a chance. You know, the coronation hasn't even taken place. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. And thank you, Petronella. Thank you. Putin had hoped to freeze out Europe this winter by denying it Russian gas. People's support for Ukraine might then wane, he thought. Owen Matthews, journalist and author of Overreach, the inside story of Putin's war in Ukraine, explains in this week's magazine about why the plan failed. He joins me now. Owen, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Um, you write this week about how Putin's attempt to freeze Europe out has failed. Um, viewers are probably familiar with the way that Europe was reliant on Russian gas before the Ukraine war. Um, can you tell us a bit about bit though about why that's changed and, and, and what's happened there? Uh, well, the intention of the Kremlin and the intention of um, uh, Kremlin propaganda was that the gas dependence that um, numerous American administrations had warned the Europeans about was going to come home to roost and that by cutting off gas supplies or restricting them, the Russians would bring Europe to its knees and cut off support for Ukraine. That actually didn't happen for three basic reasons. One, it has been an exceptionally warm winter. Um, secondly, that Putin played his gas card far too early. In other words, uh, right at the beginning of the summer, he began to threaten in various technical reasons um, the Gazprom shut down shipments um, through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, giving Europe a chance to build massive infrastructure to import liquefied national, natural gas. Um, and thirdly, uh, because there was actually a 
political resolve on the part, particularly actually an important role has been played by Germany's Greens, in fact, um, because they have very pragmatically and very significantly sort of dropped their zero carbon ambitions or suspended them uh, in favour of the expediency of actually keeping Europe or Germany you know, warm and the lights on. It's a, an amazing turnaround. Um, you mentioned in your piece as well that it's almost a, a triumph for the free market as well, um, the fact that so much gas has been able to get to Europe and Germany in particular. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, the uh, really surprising technical um, part of the story is how quickly uh, US and Canadian oil majors have been able to ramp up their uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas, production. And um, the sales of of the top 40 US and Canadian energy companies have gone up from two and a half trillion to three and a half trillion dollars over the course of this year, because LNG has basically almost replaced Russian gas as 30% of Europe's gas consumption. That's extraordinary. And obviously, that's much more expensive. And it has actually led to some very serious long-term structural problems for Europe's economy, which is largely, certainly Germany's. Uh, Many sectors are based on cheap energy, which is now no longer cheap. And though prices have fallen to pre-war levels, in fact, to October 2021 levels, those pre-war levels were actually already three times higher than they had been a couple of years before. Um, That's not really to do with the war. That's to do with different factors. Firstly, um, zero carbon has actually taken a huge amount of capacity, um, you know, uh, of... um, other capacity offline. For instance, uh, Germany's been closing its nuclear power stations. Italy closed down three nuclear power stations over the last decade. Uh, but nonetheless, the basic miracle, the extraordinary part of this story is how quickly Europe has adapted to using North American LNG. Mm. So you mentioned that there's a cost to Europe. What, what's the cost been to Russia? I mean, you mentioned this startling sort of fact in your piece that I think around a quarter of Russian state revenues come from Gazprom. Is that oh, state spending comes from Gazprom revenues? Um, so what, what's, what's the impact of this going to be on Russia, do you think? Well, um, so far it's been disguised. Um, the impact, the disaster that's unfolding has been disguised by a very high spike in gas prices over the summer, over which, you know, during which time Gazprom actually was still and still continues to sell some um, gas through its pipelines via Turkey, some pipelines via, bizarrely enough, actually still running via Ukraine and Slovakia into Central Europe. That's incredible. Um, Just go before you move on there. So Russian gas is going through Ukraine, even, but but not that whilst Europe is essentially boycotting it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's about 18, 18 billion cubic meters of, a year going through three pipelines via Ukraine. And Gazprom is paying the Ukrainian uh, state um, oil, I guess, a gas company, uh, Ukrainian Naftogaz, um, up to $2 billion a year to transport Russian gas to Europe via Ukraine. Um, again, sort of weird, weird example of the power of capitalism. Mm. But despite this, Russia's economy is being impacted still. So Russia's economy is, 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 is going to be impacted massively because Gazprom reported um, last month that its uh, exports are down by 45%, and that's pretty extraordinary. Um, another thing, I mean, most of my article is about gas, but I mean, we shouldn't forget about oil because um, Ural's crude um, is now trading at about $30 a barrel below the world oil price. 
And the euro's crude because it's sanctioned, because there's a limited number of buyers and so on. It's mostly um, uh, India and China principally. Uh, but the price has fallen to uh, around $50 a barrel for euro's crude oil. And given that Russian extraction costs are very high, I mean, between 40, 42 and 47 barrels dollars a barrel, uh, that double whammy of a collapse of oil prices and a collapse of gas uh, exports are um, actually going to be crippling for the Russian economy. And already um, there's a massive budget deficit, which is you know common, of course, in many European countries, but very rare in Russia. So already um, the economy minister uh, reported a um, 2.5% uh, budget deficit, and that's that can only get worse. And viewers might be wondering, Owen, you mentioned this in the piece, why Russia can't, for example, export gas to more gas to China and and India to sort of make up the shortfall. Can you can you explain a bit about that, please? Uh, well, simply because uh, Russian uh, Russia doesn't really have any LNG infrastructure. In other words, all of Russia's gas, or the vast majority of Russia's gas, goes through pipelines which is what makes it cheap. Piped gas is cheaper than liquefied gas just because it's very expensive to liquefy and transport gas. And Putin's answer to the collapse of exports to Europe was so-called Pavarot Navastok, like the turn east. So Putin said, OK, well, we're going to sell, sell this to China. Fine. You know, currently, Russia sells 12 billion cubic meters a year to China. Uh, it had sold before the war about 180 cubic me- billion cubic meters to Europe. So you know, that's a major difference. And the, what you need to sell more is a pipeline. And there's a projected pipeline called Power of Siberia 2, which goes from Yamal Peninsula in the Russian Arctic. Across 2,400 kilometers will be the, by far the longest gas pipeline ever contemplated. 2,400 kilometers across Siberia to bring it to the Chinese market. Now, that someone has to pay for that. It's not going to be the Chinese. Power of Siberia 1, which already is, is, is shipping those uh, 12 billion uh, cubic meters that I spoke about, um, cost an inordinate amount of money. It was about a $20 billion project, and it was 100% funded by Gazprom, not by the Chinese. And the, the Russians themselves... Um, said that it was actually not going to be a profitable project. It was a strategic project. So they're going to require an enormous amount of money, an enormous amount of infrastructure, um, which they're going to have great difficulty getting both, um, thanks to sanctions. So this whole idea of selling more gas to China is is sort of pie in the sky. They need massive investment either in LNG infrastructure or in pipeline infrastructure in order to get it to China. Right. So no, no easy answers for Russia there. Um, you mentioned in the beginning of the piece that sort of this Russian attempt to freeze Europe out has been kind of used as a propaganda point in Russia. You mentioned there's a, a sort of an RT video of a, of a European family huddling for warmth in their home. Um, now this doesn't seem to have worked. Do you, do you get the sense there's any acknowledgement inside Russia that this has backfired? Or do you think they're just going to sort of blithely go on and ignore it? Um, the propagandists are blindly going ahead and ignoring it. Um, there is actually a sort of semi-official acknowledgement in that Russia is actually, you know, basically acknowledging that their attempts to weaponize energy are failing in the, in the form of a an amended decree. Uh, so in March, the Russian government stipulated that gas uh, supply could only be paid in rubles. Um, uh, now that has actually been amended. Um, uh, 
uh, earlier this month, actually, to say that now actually people who owe Gazprom money can just pay in euros or or dollars. So I mean, you know, essentially that's a sort of that, that that's that's an official admission that Russia is by no means as powerful. Um, in energy as it thought it was. And actually, you know, to take a step backwards, it's an illustration of a sort of wider and deeper problem for Russia, is that Russia's leaders and Russian people tend to massively overestimate their importance in the world. They actually really, you can call it a superpower complex or whatever. But actually the reality was that although Russia was in fact the biggest energy exporter in the world, it actually accounted for about 10% of world's production. I mean, that 10% is significant, but it's not 90%. It's, you know, it's not enough. It's enough to cause you know, serious problems uh, for, for, for Europe um, and cause a spike in, in gas prices that we saw over the summer. But it's not enough to bring Europe to its knees. It's a harsh lesson for Putin. Uh, thank you very much, Owen. And finally, critic John Mayer reviews Quentin Tarantino's new book, Cinema Speculation, in this week's magazine. But can the director write as well as he makes films? John joins me now. John, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Um, you review Cinema Speculation by Quentin Tarantino in this week's magazine. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the book? Is it kind of a, a memoir? Is it essays? What, what kind of... Oh, well, it? the book is, is billed as a memoir, somewhat misleadingly. Um, it's really a kind of quite long compendium of um, sort of critical appraisals of films that Quentin Tarantino was allowed to see as a child. Mm. And um, he sort of goes into quite, quite great depth about his reactions to them um, when he was kind of exposed to them at an age um, when they were sort of um, quite eccentric mm. childhood viewing for him. Yeah, I think you describe it as it's quite a selfish love almost that, that Tarantino has of his own... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think that I think one thing that you see play out in the book a bit is that it sort of embodies a few of the same vices that you see at work in Quentin Tarantino's later films, where you sort of think that they're slightly in want of a good edit, slightly <laughs> indulgent, um, slightly kind of drawn to these, um, yeah, sort of quite um, dogmatic um, sort of uh, uh, denouements and conclusions and things. And I... I I suppose that it is a sort of selfish love in that he, um, he's very fascinated, like all sort of anoraks are, with the kind of detail of his own reactions um, and not terribly concerned with whether we're um, similarly interested in, in knowing about that. Um, it, is, it is funny. It's kind of, um, it's slightly kind of indifferent to, to what the reader is um, perhaps interested to know about. And you say his sort of love of violence comes across very early on in his life. Yeah. So well, so he has this kind of confrontation with his mother. His mother has an extremely kind of permissive attitude, um, which I gather sort of Tarantino has himself, which is that it's okay to watch these kinds of catastrophic demonstrations of violence, um, so long as they're in context. And you kind of think, like, what does this, what does this actually rule out? And she does have this, you know, a, a couple of times she sort of says, you can't watch... You, he couldn't watch The Exorcist, right. and he couldn't watch Straw Dogs. Um, although he, he does say that his child psychologist watches Straw Dogs, oh, okay. so they talk about it. Um, but he, I mean, but the Texas Chainsaw. He saw that. that. I don't know how old he would have been when that came out. I mean, it is very odd. So she has this kind of like rather sort of unmotivated tendency to sort of very occasionally make these kind of unjustified exceptions. But yeah, he sees this extremely 
these extremely violent films and is extremely impressed by them. Mm. And um, you do kind of think it's fed into his own creative sensibility, this yeah. kind of, this degree to which he's very impressed by these kinds of overwhelming displays of violence. Mm. And, and you sort of suggest, I think it's an interesting point, that he's sort of been emotionally stunted by this in a way. That he's almost yeah. fixated on violence and unable to escape it. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I don't know Quentin, so I don't, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to claim too much. But he, I mean, he does, he doesn't seem to be sort of um, temperamentally extremely well balanced. I mean, I don't know how, how far the two are connected. I mean, I'm, it doesn't seem kind of, I mean, the, again, the argument that the mother makes, um, as far as I recall, is that it's sort of, it's okay because watching this kind of violence won't, won't lead you yourself to be mm. violent. But I mean, that's obviously not the only bad thing that could, could happen. I mean, you could, for example, turn out to be Quentin Tarantino, which some people might think is, it's not a great example, <laughs> no, but, but you know, but it, you know, the other bad things could happen, right? And Tarantino himself has defended a lot of the violence in his films. Yeah. You know, what's your view on the sort of the, the gratuitous violence? Do you think it's sort of uh, it's justified by the medium kind of thing? Um, I mean, like I do, yeah. I mean, it's it's you can sort of thinking about Tarantino's films. Sometimes they kind of seem like sort of these rather elaborate excuses for these huge, um, these huge kind of um, indulgent displays of violence, like, you know, oh, what if we could kill Hitler or like, you know, kill the slave owners or, or whatever. Mm. And so, yes, yeah, so it's kind of like, I mean, it's, it's kind of very, very sort of wish-fulfilling stuff. Mm. You know, it's kind of almost fetishistic of violence. Like, like some kinds of porn, there's kind of a little bit of ingenuity used in kind mm. of setting up the fantasy. And then it's kind of all like id-led, mm. you know, kind of just wish-fulfilling stuff. I mean, I don't know, I think it's, he's... So I think in a way it has a sort of negative consequence for his films in a way. Mm. I mean, I feel a bit bad about this because I think that, I mean, some of films, his films are quite enjoyable, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's just that this is a case where the kind of creative ingenuity and insight doesn't translate very readily to the kind of appreciative, critical mm. arena. Yeah, and do you think um, a lot of sort of change from the era, so he's in his childhood, he's sort of, you know, it seems like violence had more of a capacity to shock back then. And do you think that's been lost? And now him looking back at it, it almost seems a bit milk toast, almost, compared to what most people are exposed to in terms of TV and film these days. Um, I, I suppose that that could be true. I mean, I think, I think things, I mean, you know, the more films that are made and the more that standards relax, the, the less shocking lots mm -hmm. of things are just, just by into continued exposure. It's interesting though that one of the things he says is that the most shocking, I mean he says something like, the most shocking scene in a film I ever saw was the scene in Bambi where the mother gets, <laughs> gets shot. And, he's, and he sort of describes his, react, his very kind of expletive laden reaction uh, when he was sort of about four years old or something. Um, and it's, I mean it, it is curious. So it's not, I mean I, it's not just that the violence is kind of aesthetically shocking, mm. um, although obviously he does go in for that. Um, I think it's more that he sort of, he likes this kind of um, unpredictable transgression, mm. um, as, in, as in the case of Bambi, you're kind of just doing something that is sort of not allowed. Um, so I think that's, I think it's not just, I mean, although, although obviously he does, he does obviously enjoy um, mm. catastrophic violence. Yeah, I don't know if he's, if it's, it's if it doesn't have the same effect anymore because I mean, he has said that he's going to stop making films um, in, and he's correspondingly threatened to write more books. Um, so so maybe, he, maybe he thinks he can disturb more with books now than films. Brilliant. Thank you, John.
that's it for this week. Once again, thank you to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for sponsoring the week in 60 minutes. Canaccord will provide you with the expertise you need to help you build your wealth with confidence. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week. Thank you.